is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast, picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. It's a podcast where I pick the brains of the top investors in the country. And uh, we try to understand how they approach investments, how do they pick winners, and what do they do when they end up with a dog in their portfolio. My guest today is Craig Gradich. He is the Gradich in the financial advice and investment group Gradich Mahura. And he has a long list of qualifications. He has a BCom and BCom honors. He holds a postgraduate diploma in financial planning as well as an MBA. He is also the vice chairperson of the Investment Competency Committee of the FBI. And uh, he serves as an independent expert on the investment subcommittee of Medshield. But probably more importantly, he has been in the industry since 1996. Craig, welcome to the show. Gradish Mahura offers a very diversified offering. How big is the investment arm? Good day, uh, Raik, and good to chat to you. Our investment arm is just close on 1.9 billion assets under advisement. So it's grown in the last few years. The business has been around uh, since 2008. So we, we got our timing horribly wrong in starting the business. You, you know, we got our license during the epicenter of the financial crisis, the global financial crisis. But we managed to survive. And um, yeah, yeah, we are kind of 14 years later. And is it a focus area for you going forward? Are you actually formulating structures to do research into equities and other asset classes to try and obviously build this business, but in a more formalized way? Yes, that's certainly part of the longer term strategy of the business. You know, with these businesses, you, you've got to first build up a track record and build up a bit of credibility in the market. You've got to, you know, service the, the client base that you, you have. And over time, as you build a business, you are then able to to bring in these different components. Mm-hmm. So that's certainly a bit further down the road. For now, we, we continue to build a business and, and service our existing clients. Greg, let's talk about you. Do you have your own investment portfolio and do you really dabble in the market? Yes. Uh, so I've been investing in the markets in my personal capacity since 1998. So, yeah, I've seen a few crises over the years, you know, caught a few winners, caught uh, a few losers as well. But, yeah, it's, it's been an incredible journey just to, to learn from, from markets over the last, sort of, what's it, 24 years now. Can you remember what share was your very, very first investment? I can. It was uh, Murray and Roberts. So, um, yeah, the story behind my first investment was... Uh, a strange one. So I worked in Houghton and I, I had a meeting in Santon and driving from my office to the meeting, I drove past about four or five Murray and Robert signs. And I think one of them was where Maldor's Arch is now. And uh, I was just struck by the fact that I'd seen so many Murray and Robert signs on, on that short trip came back to the office, had a look, and their share was trading around 290. Opened my trading account, put money in and bought, and uh, sold not long afterwards. I can't remember about a year or so afterwards. At double what I invested, 
yeah, had I been a bit more patient, I could have sold at a hundred rand. So that's uh, definitely my first lesson uh, in in kind of holding on to to the winners and letting the winners run. But yeah, that you know nobody gets gets poor by taking a profit apparently. No, absolutely. If you take a profit, it's never a loss. I've spoken to many investors and their first investments are so linked to personal experience. You drove past a few signs. Obviously, that created a positive sentiment uh, towards the share. You had a glance at it and then you bought it. Would you do that today? So I've done that on several occasions since. Uh, I remember when I moved down to Cape Town years ago, I think it was early 2000s, I had a company phone. Uh, and I had strict limits around the usage of the company phone. So I went and I got another phone so I could find the girlfriend, who's now my <laughs> wife. <laughs> and I remember going to a BP garage, getting uh, airtime for about 30 or 40 bucks. And I got home and um, I lost the ticket. So I had to go back to the garage and get another one. And then got home and I spoke for all of, I think it was six or seven minutes and then the, the call cut. Now, you know, when you're young and in love, six minutes is nothing. <laughs> so, but, but I was just struck by the fact that, you know, even though I didn't use the product, I couldn't get a refund on the ticket I lost. Uh, and uh, I spent quite a lot of money uh, on those, those few phone calls. The phone calls were a lot more expensive back then. So that's how I bought uh, MTN, uh, I think about 75 bucks. So, yeah, it, it, it was different experiences but you know if you look at in any investment website uh, asset management firms website uh, even on your own website all the investment strategies are built around research built around long-term strategies but you know many investors use a gut feeling and a personal experience to choose shares and obviously, when you buy uh, shares with a gut feeling, luck must play a massive role. How do you see luck as being part of an investment strategy? Look, I think when it comes to kind of investing on that basis, I mean, with both, both those investments, I, I certainly didn't put a lot, lot of money on the table. As the longer I, I was in the industry and, you know, completing studies and all of that, then it becomes a bit more formalized and you start looking at revenue trends and margins and return on equity and, and various variables. But there, there is a soft element to it where people are talking about a business and there's a bit of excitement and you read the, the commentary from, um, from the financial statements around the prospects facing a business. So, you know, when you start investing bigger amounts, then certainly you want to have a lot more structure and uh, perhaps a lot more research into the, the shares that you are buying. But, uh, you know, I think a well-balanced portfolio also, there needs to be, an, well, I wouldn't say there needs to be, but there very often is an element of, you know, you want to take a chance, either a share has fallen deeply out of favor and the price has been knocked down and and we know from from experience that you know when things are good the market often drives share prices too high and when things are bad they often drive share prices too low and so those present opportunities either to to get out or to get into a share and those sort of speculative bids you you need to have good uh, risk management around that. Do you do your own research or do you look at other people's research? I certainly look at other people's research. So get research that's available on the platforms where I'm trading. 
And then also being in the industry, you know, you attend various manager presentations where they present their research and you would then go back and do more research on, on those stocks. But that but is complicated because I see on Profile Media, for example, Profile is the data provider to MoneyWeb and there's a summary of analysts' recommendations and sometimes they say if there are five recommendations, two would say it's a buy, two would say it's a sell, and one would say it's a hold. So research definitely isn't consistent. You just need to pick the right research. Yes, well, you, you need to make up your own mind. So if, if everyone is saying buy, it doesn't, you know, that everyone can be wrong. So, you, you know, you do get those scenarios where it's a unanimous, it's like five buys, zero sells and zero holds. But you still need to make up your own mind around whether what the market is seeing is correct or the opposite. Uh, and sometimes it's very difficult going against the market, uh, but sometimes it can pay off quite spectacularly. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking, for example, at the consensus view from Profile about Naspas, and it is a strong buy. And this share has decreased or dropped by over 50% over the past year. But, you know, research is definitely not a guarantee for success. And uh, there are, you know, many, many companies or many investment houses who have more misses than hits. In your portfolio, what is the ratio between uh, hits and misses? Yeah, look, as it stands, I think there's about three or four misses, three or four hits and kind of 16, 17 sort of middle of the road, kind of positive middle of the road, sort of similar to market. But also there are a few misses that are no longer in the portfolio because uh, they've triggered stop losses mm. that I've put in. So if, you know, if I buy a share and I think it's a long-term hold and, you know, results come out and the story has maybe changed a bit and the share price drops, but I've got a, a stop loss mm. at uh, 15 or 20 percent. If it's a holding i'd have the stop loss at 30 percent because with your speculative positions you expect a bit more volatility and yeah so there I, I think i've had probably about three or four sales in the last year so so that would up my losses to about six six or seven talk to us about stop losses how important is that for a normal retail investor to consider i think a stop loss strategy is part of your risk management so, you know, as I say, I think it's prudent to have a stop loss in place because, one, you can be wrong about a company. Two, a company's fortunes could change and they fall out of favor with the market or the sector falls out of favor. You know, when you make a decision and you've got this confidence that you're right about something, a stop loss kind of prevents you from yourself there. It, it stops you from kind of your own hubris and kind of self-importance, uh, overconfidence, so to speak. So I think a stop-loss uh, strategy is important. You should be clear about what your stop-losses are and where a particular share falls in. Is it part of your long-term core holding? Is it a kind of a speculative position? That sort of thing. And when it breaks the stop, you sell it. 
That's one way of looking at it. Other investors uh, would say, listen, one of the biggest mistakes you can make as an investor is selling while a share is going down and, and selling it too early and, and then you miss the rebound. Is that contradictory or is it just maybe, you know, you need to manage your risk within a cycle and you need to make sure that emotion doesn't, you know, influence the decision? Yeah, well, that, that's part of the reason for the stop loss is that you take the emotion out of it. But you have to be comfortable with a certain level of downside and you got to draw the line somewhere. Mm. So I think for, for everybody, it's different. You can, you know, there are lots of academic papers around stop loss strategies and, you know, it's, it's a personal thing. So personally, if I've got a, what I know is part of my speculative part of the portfolio and typically the other risk management part around that is sort of size. So if it's a speculative investment, I'm not putting 10% of the portfolio there. Yeah. I'm putting 2 to 3% of the portfolio there and I'm putting it with a bigger uh, stop. Whereas if it's a core holding in the portfolio, then perhaps a sort of 15 to 20% stop loss. It helps to take out the emotion. Do you think it has saved you money? It has. In some instances, it has. In other instances, particularly in sort of cyclical, highly cyclical sectors, I've sold uh, on a stop and it fell further and uh, then turned around with the cycle and went through the stop level, through my buy level and carried on a lot higher. Uh, but eventually you come to accept that as part of investing. And uh, let's talk about your best and worst investments. What would you regard as your best one yet? Yeah, my best one yet. Sure, that was, I don't remember the exact timing, but that was buying uh, Pinnacle Technologies at around 70 cents uh, and selling it at around uh, 14 rand. So it was a 20 bagger. Well, that was probably uh, during the dot-com boom in the late 90s. No, no, no. Uh, that was in the 2000s. Oh. And I think I had to sell because I had started the business and taken a salary cut. So I was kind of exiting portions of my portfolio over time. But yes, it was in the 2000s. It wasn't in the late 90s. And uh, your biggest dog? My biggest dog? Um <laughs> Yeah, you see, you can remember the winners. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think early on, early on, I got caught up with, uh, what is it, Greenwich? And, oh, I forget some of their names. They, that was during the small cap bubble that burst. Um, there were some of those small cap financial stocks. Okay, well, yeah. as you say, sometimes you forget. Uh, Bra the, brainwave, the, the, there we go, sorry. Brainwave. Brain, brainwave, that was Speed and Boer, oh, if, if I remember correctly. Speed and Boer. Yeah. Jeez, that's many yes. years ago. So, that was, yeah, that was early on in the game. What advice would you give amateur investors? How do you think they can improve their game? Look, I, I think you've got to be clear with, with investing. You've got to be clear on your principles. You know, ultimately you're dealing with, you've got to make a decision today and only over time will you know if that was the right or wrong decision. So when you're dealing with that level of uncertainty and you're having to make decisions in a situation like that, then you've got to have clear principles. So you know, be clear around your position sizing, you be clear around the strategy, you know, are you going to go for 
kind of growth-oriented stocks, value stocks, combination. I think it's good to have uh, core positions in a portfolio. So there your index tracker is a broad-based index tracker. Uh, is often a very good core holding. Um, and, you know, over time you'll, you'll find that is, it's a lot more stable than the rest of your portfolio. And, yeah, be, be clear around, you know, is this a speculative position that I'm buying? Is it kind of what are my expectations from this investment that I'm making today? And then be patient. If you look at uh, Twitter, there's a lot of discussion. Uh, this thing, the shares fallen, should I sell it? Or the shares gone up, is it too late to buy? And People get caught up in, in kind of short-term noise. Mm. So I think if you clear around the principles and your objectives and the kind of companies that you want to hold, then do that and, and, and try not to get caught up in the noise. If you do want a bit of excitement, take it with a portion of your portfolio and Understand that that's the rest of the portfolio is kind of long-term boring, you know, equity returns. Can you maybe tell us which shares are in your core portfolio? I've got a few of the public BE shares where I've built up sort of big positions over time. And that's just because of the fact that, um, you know, there's, there's long-term value in there. So, so Yebo Yetu is, is, is the biggest holding. Sol BE, which is a discounted Sassel share. It's trading at the widest discount I've, I've ever seen it at. So close on a 55% discount. The long-term average for the discount is 30% or around the 30% number. So that's one that I've been accumulating. I've got a bit of MTNs that I bought beginning of last year, I think, at about 60. So well, the average price was 60. PSG, PSG was up there. Uh, and Glencore, those are yeah, those are my top. Tungela has come in, mm. so Tungela started out as part of my um, speculative mm. position, and then it kind of grew into a fairly big holding. Some of the losers has been, no, no, EIH. We we still up on EIH, but as I said, you always remember the winners. Yeah. Right? Uh, just lastly, <laughs> do you look at cryptos at all? Speculatively. So what, what I've also done is I've stripped out the speculative completely from the main portfolio and my, I've played the speculative on, on easy equities. So that that's where I hold my speculative part of the portfolio, far away from the main portfolio. And that, that's kind of also to separate my mindset, that if I know I'm on easy and I'm trading and it's kind of lots of nudity and violence in the portfolio <laughs> there then it's i know what what i'm there for and then with the other portfolio it's a lot more structured violence so, in the portfolio how often do you trade so on the long-term portfolio not very often probably 10 15 times a year maybe once a month <laughs> yeah on the speculative part it's been it's been a lot more active so there i can trade three times a week like I say, it's quite small compared to the main portfolio. So I'm not really bothered that there's going to be tax implications with that. Then the crypto goes in and all the small caps and things like that. Greg, thank you so much for your time and insights today. And good luck with your core as well as your speculative portfolios. Hopefully this year brings good returns. Thank you. From your lips to God's ears. <laughs> that was Craig Gradich. He is the Gradich in the Financial Advice and Investment Group, Gradich Mahura.
Show me the money. That was the Money Web, the A Better Investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the Money Web podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. Money Web, your trusted source for business and investment insights.